good afternoon and welcome. I'm Stan Allen, uh, Dean of the School of Architecture. Um, it's gratifying to see uh, a large turnout for this event, and I think it uh, indicates the high level of interest in tonight's lecture. Um, I do want to make one announcement, which is that um, because of some tight uh, time constraints, we're not actually going to be able to uh, entertain questions uh, after the lecture, but uh, I hope there will be some time, future date, for uh, more in-depth discussions. Um, it's our great pleasure this afternoon uh, to kick off the events celebrating the dedication of Whitman College with a lecture by its distinguished architect and Princeton alumnus, Dimitri Porfirios. If one of the aims of architecture is the thoughtful making of place, Porfirios has indeed succeeded. With the completion of Whitman College, an area of the campus that used to feel marginal has been transformed into a place that truly belongs to the campus. Passing by or walking through the courtyards of Whitman College, what seems extraordinary today is the degree to which this only recently finished building already feels like an integral part of the Princeton campus. Now, here at Princeton, Porfirios is primarily identified with Whitman College. He is, however, an architect of diverse accomplishment. He received both a Master of Architecture and a PhD from Princeton's School of Architecture and has gone on to develop an extensive international practice based in London. His realized projects include the new quadrangle for the Madeleine College at Oxford, the new courts for Selwyn College at Cambridge, the Belvedere Village in Ascot, and the Duncan Galleries in Nebraska. Among many other projects, the firm is currently at work on the library for the St. Catherine Monastery in Sinai, as well as a number of urban design projects, including King's Cross Central Development in London. This work has been recognized with a number of significant awards, including the Dry House International Prize in Architecture and the Arthur Ross Award for Excellence in the Classical Tradition. Although known primarily as a practitioner, Porfirios has also made important scholarly contributions. His early publications on Alvar Alto, based on his PhD uh, dissertation at Princeton, changed the way that architects and historians view the work of this Scandinavian modernist architect. His research on Nordic classicism shed new light on previously overlooked early work of architects such as Gunnar Asplund and Sigurd Leverens. He holds an honorary doctorate from the University of Notre Dame and has been the Thomas Jefferson Professor at the University of Virginia and the Bishop Professor at Yale. And indeed, it's this parallel record of a, of a critical intelligence informed by a sense of history and a strong record of built work as an architect uh, that uh, represents the best of uh, Princeton's uh, aspirations. Porfirios, of course, is identified with the revival of traditional architecture, uh, which he has described as soundly constructed buildings marked by a sense of place. He resists the temptation to merely quote from the past and instead delves deeply into the principles that have informed traditional architecture over its long historical arc. It has, of course, been instructive uh, to watch the simultaneous construction of Whitman College and the Frank Gehry uh, Lewis Library rising on opposite sides of the campus over the past uh, number of years. Now, unlike many contemporary architects, Porfirios is not interested in the personal signature of the architect as an artist. Instead, he submits to the logic of the discipline and its time-tested rules, making incremental advances within a continuous tradition. In this sense, Whitman College becomes part of an evolving history, and Porfirios takes his place alongside such architects as Copen Stewartson, Ralph Adams Cram, or Day and Clowder, whose work has given Princeton's residential colleges their unique sense of place. Now, it's significant to me that the subtitle of his lecture tonight is The Making of Whitman College. The buildings and public spaces of Whitman College are indeed made things, that is to say, carefully crafted artifacts built to last well beyond the moment. This was, I believe, one of the most important decisions 
around the construction of Whitman College and the selection of Porfirios as its architect. Whitman College not only looks like a traditional collegiate Gothic building, uh, it is built according to the same principles and using similar techniques, including bearing wall masonry construction and authentic materials. It would have been easier, perhaps, to make a kind of stage set Gothic, but Porfirios and the university chose not to do that. And that, in my mind, is one of the project's most lasting and significant achievements. Please welcome Dmitry Porfirios. It is really, uh, good afternoon. It is really fantastic to be here um, for various reasons which I will actually expound in due time. Um, but firstly, I would like to, uh, to thank Stan for his uh, generous introduction. And if indeed I remain, if indeed I remain for one or two weeks or a year, if indeed I remain in history, but if indeed I remain in history together with Stuartson and Cram, my God, <clears throat> then Princeton University should be really happy that I was here as a student. <clears throat> I'm, I'm absolutely, um, as I said, I'm absolutely delighted to be here on, on, on a number of, for a number of reasons, obviously. I mean, the first thing is it's such an august institution to... Uh, to get a commission of that significance that Whitman is and of that size and that scale and such intricacy is, is, I wouldn't say it's actually an achievement, it is just beyond an issue of achievement. And so therefore, um, I actually almost consider that this probably would be my most important building as, as a practitioner. The second thing which actually makes me incredibly uh, happy to be here and delighted is, of course, that I came here as a student of history of art who had actually done mathematics before. Um, and who decided to go into architecture because I wanted to kind of mess up my hands with bricks and mortars. And as the dean actually said, I found out that architecture is not only about composition, it's not only about cardboard models. It is that also, there's no doubt about it. But it is above and beyond, and at least for me, about the sustainability of the construction, the way by which that building will engage with the site, will engage with the people, will actually become a place-making device in a different world, in a different word, what, what, what the dean was actually referring to, I suppose, before. And, and um, these, these are really contributions or insights in architecture, which one might dare say are not extremely popular these days. But then again, who cares about that? <laughs> Next, please. Uh, that, that's, that's fine. Um, actually, if it's like slightly higher the light, it would be nice if I could actually see faces rather than sort of outlines. <laughs> Just a little bit. Great. Um, now, traditional modernity, the making of, of Whitman College. Great. <laughs> it's always this case. I was actually talking with, with Nikki the other day, uh, uh, when my, 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 my assistant at the office. I said, well, when we used to have slides, it was almost impossible to know what will happen with the slides. These days, with PowerPoints, is, is probably the same. Um, anyway, now... What I would like very briefly to do this afternoon is to uh, speak about the organization of Whitman College, uh, 
the primary sort of design decisions and the way by which one actually proceeded with those, to talk about then the constructional system, and I will try not to bore you about that, but I have to actually talk about it because it's very important, and I'll try to explain why it is important. And thirdly, um, about the issues of surrounding materials, texture, tactility, the sensuous aspects of life, and, and of course, ultimately, detailing and profile. Next, please. In 2001, following a rather extensive search involving about 20, 25 or so international architectural firms, Princeton University selected us as design architects for the new Whitman College. It was, for me, and I have to be true here, uh, a, a, a great moment in the history of my practice to actually have John Lafter uh, picking up the phone and calling me and saying, well, look, you know, you should really come here in order to discuss with the president, etc., etc." And that moment I will never really forget. It's almost like when you actually go to school as a little child for the first time and somebody takes you by hand and kind of shows you into the classroom. It was, it was a great moment for me, and I will never really, I will never forget it, and I will always cherish that moment. Now, at the time, the site which the university had actually decided to become the site for the new Whitman College, which is basically this site here, that site was occupied by tennis courts, which tennis courts had, for those who remember, cut very deeply into the sloping ground. And rightly so, because there had to be tennis courts. They had to have like a flat surface. <laughs> and, and it's not very, very difficult really to play tennis on a slope. So, uh, so they had really kind of established almost, when you look at it from a landscape point of view, it was a kind of a flat crater. It was as if some sort of meteoric uh, statement had actually happened and something was actually totally flattened. And, and I remember that. I remember those quotes really from as a student here. And although they were fantastic quotes and they were so close to the university, the, 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 so close to the... Um, um, to the residential buildings and all of that, and extremely useful, they somehow sat into that ground with an incredible sort of uneasiness. Now, the first thing that I thought, the first strategy that we actually discussed at the office, next please, is to uh, see how we can actually situate a group of buildings there which somehow do not sit on a flat level. Somehow they do not show the sectional differences from one level to another or from one parter to another to situate a number of buildings that actually seem quite natural, sitting quite natural at the site. And, and, and in that sense, at least theoretically, the proposition was to restore the landscape to come back to what used to be, to return to sanity, to actually establish levels of, of beauty with the landscape. So um, what we decided very early on, and, and, and the process of design was actually very interesting because it was an amazing sort of dialogue between ourselves and the university itself, uh, starting, of course, with, um, with John Lafter, but actually moving also to the, uh, um, to the university with the more, you know, the general administration and, and all the way up to President Tillman. At that time, and I have to mention that because I just saw him before, Tom Wright was the vice president of the university, the position which is now occupied by Mark Bernstein, and, and I say that with great sort of um, love and affection because um, Tom 
um, sowed some of the initial ideas for the, this, this project together with uh, <coughs> uh, Malquil. Now, the project now unfolded in different levels, on different levels, on different parterres. Uh, there are three parterres. This is the first parterre, the highest. That is the second one, and that's the third one. So this is the south court, the, the north court, or the Chester court. This is the 1963 court, or the south court, and that's the east courts, and eventually, I think, it's named as Mazer Green. Next, please. <clears throat> the other thing that was in my mind early on, and, and we had various discussions with the administration and with the donors, uh, was what would be the connection, the connective tissue between this new organism, this new group of buildings, and the rest of the university. And I think that's, that's really a philosophical issue, there's no doubt. It's primarily a philosophical issue and then an architectural issue, whether it is Gothic, whether it is classical, whether it is Renaissance, whether it is Baroque, whether it is futuristic, whether it is whatever. It, it, it remains to be an issue. In other words, how does the university and how does eventually, I suppose, the architect envisages, imagines a college? Is a college an uh, introverted entity? Is, is a college something that actually rises at 6.45 in the morning and goes to bed about 9.30, 10, whatever it is, and during that time, it allows nobody to come through its walls. Is a college something that is open like a nightclub and anybody can come in and out? Uh, uh, is, is, you know, these sorts of issues, I'm putting, of course, extreme cases, but you can appreciate what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to actually say here. And to tell you the truth, I always thought that architecture, firstly, deals with the site, which I mentioned about it. Secondly, deals with commodity commoditas. It deals with commodious disposition, the commodious disposition of the brief, the commodious disposition of the program, the way, in other words, of organizing things so that the people who will live in there will actually feel commodiously happy, commodiously enhanced, and they would be in sync, as they say nowadays, with nature and with life. I don't think that architecture has to do with aggression. I don't think that architecture has to do with conflict. I don't think that architecture has to do with uh, any sort of uh, imposition of the self against the will of the commonality, of the collective, and so on. So interconnections, approaches, ways of entering became, to me, which is an architectural device of what I said before, became to me a very important issue quite early on. And that drawing actually describes that relatively clearly. From the north, there are two major approaches. One is a northwestern approach which is that approach here, <clears throat> starting from Matty and then going through Blair Hall and going through the amazing group of uh, early 20th century Gothic revival collegiate architecture and then swerving next to Pine Hall and coming next to the um, buildings of I.M. Pei and then eventually moving down to the car park, etc., etc. At that point, it actually came up to there and then pitter out because there was nothing here. So I felt that that move, that approach was very important. And so this is a very important approach, one which is very important and major from the north. And at that point, we decided to actually enter the college, Whitman College, at that point, with the Tower of Merley Pivirotto. And at that point here, 
we decided to create a, a, a break into the structure, to create a kind of slight sort of passage. But it's got to be slight. It's got to have to be, like, narrow, so that you actually feel that you go through, so that the experience of passage, the experience of entrance, the division, and also the connection, which is what really passage and entrance is about, is actually felt quite strongly. And that passage is actually today finally uh, established and created by the position of this building here, which is Fisher Hall, and this building, which is an L-shaped building, uh, which, is, um, uh, which is a North, north Hall. Next, please. Now, this is that entrance. That is how it was conceived. It is not the final object, as never it could be. Uh, but that's how it has been conceived, and you can actually see, I've got a lot of images which actually show sketches, perspectives, and then the final view in photography to actually see the connections and the relationships. And I would like to think that the image was actually strong enough to captivate and, and, and to be able to kind of sustain its, its truthfulness. Uh, this is a ramp that we were mentioning before. This is a tower with a turret on that side, and that's another building that will come in a second. But what is really important here is that. And that, when you go and see the buildings, is, is basically some sort of um, moat, I suppose. I mean, the reading may be that of a moat. Uh, uh, and it's actually, it's a quote-unquote dry moat, and so I've heard a number of people, comments actually saying, well, you know, why on earth? You know, we're going to have moats here. Uh, uh, what is happening? And also, you know, like to have like a bridge and also a bridge which presumably there must have been water here before. And so therefore there's an arch so that water can go through, etc., etc. Now, making architecture is making a place. And making a place is responding to the context. Responding to the context is responding to landscape. And the fantastic thing in what was there when that flat area was a tennis court was that the western escarpment, this, was populated with fantastic mature trees because these this tennis courts were there for a very, very long time. So there were trees of about like 30 meters high, fantastic, and it just, I just couldn't cut them down. Even if the university actually said, well, which of course it didn't, okay, fine, you get a decree and fine, you can cut the trees, it made no sense really to go against the history of the site. And so that was kept. And once that was kept, then of course the whole kind of narrative around that was built and that was one interpretation of, of, of that. Next, please. That is the way by which that these are all construction pictures that I will show you because I haven't managed to photograph, we haven't managed to photograph this building uh, uh, after its completion. This is the way by, by which it has been uh, 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 realized. Next, please. Now, the next axis from the north is this axis here, which actually takes us all the way from the most important and central place square public space of the university next to Nassau Hall takes us all the way down by Dylan Jim and then at that point for yourselves for you who actually do know Princeton and do know the site at that point the views up to here they're actually short views it's like from here to there it's like 100 meters 50 meters, I don't know, 100 feet, whatever it is, 30 meters, whatever. Um, they open up every now and then, but basically the north-south view are actually closed views. At that point, there's a great tower of Dillon Gym right there, and for those who may not go to exercise and they want to continue to the south, then by the time you make that swerving, at that point there, you're almost at the top of the ridge, so to speak. And at that point, you look down, and you look down at that, and, and, and then you recall the processions at the root of the procession at commencement. And 
I thought that that is a fantastic history. It's a fantastic moment in the history of life and how the whole university actually works. And, and that it has to actually be maintained. And not only maintained, but enhanced and dramatized. It's got to be actually brought forward and made something that, that could be a memorable sort of experience. So at that point then, we decided and the university, well, we proposed rather, and the university agreed and the um, donors also um, agreed that it would be necessary to kind of leave these things open. So no tree ever were to be actually planted there. And if it were to be planted there, then within a week or two, it would have to be cut down. <clears throat> because this is a fantastic thing, because this is the connective tissue of the procession all the way to here, where the president actually gives the degrees. And that's a fantastic thing. To somebody who is not a Prestonian, this is like a gimmick. But to somebody who has lived in this place and actually went and, and, and had the period, it's, it's something that... <laughs> You know, it's anathema to actually say that you're not going to have that. That's what I meant by strengthening the tradition, strengthening the history, strengthening the little things that actually make life understandable and livable and lovable. <clears throat> Next, please. Can we, can we go back? Sorry for that. Can we go back? Right. Thank you. So coming down like that, you cannot enter, but this is the first time that you can actually enter uh, Whitman College. You can enter through a diagonal, not frontally, but through a diagonal. That entrance was a frontal entrance, totally frontal entrance, and controlled, absolutely controlled. This is a rather sort of loose entrance controlled only by the path, uh, but otherwise it's a diagonal entrance. Next, please. And that's, that's the entrance. That's how we had imagined it initially. We imagined it that it's an entrance not to a building, but it is an entrance to a collection of buildings. It is an entrance to a small hamlet. It is an entrance to a small village. It is an entrance to a townscape, which is called Whitman College. It is not a single building that is put on a podium, it is not different buildings which are put on different sorts of podia to distinguish their relative importance, but it is really a composition of an additive and accretional way of making a town, of making a town. The landscape together with a city, together with a, with a, with a, with a roofscape of all the buildings together. A composition which actually established and based itself on contraposto. A composition that actually said, if I'm going to use a horizontal line, then after a while I've got to have the staccato, the vertical. Sometimes the vertical has to be that. Sometimes it has to be that and all, etc., etc. And you actually, I imagine when we first started doing, I remember when we were first doing, we were not really doing volumes. We had charcoal and we were actually just jetting it out, what we had in our, in our, in our cells. You know, in other words, those images. And, and a lot of times at the office, uh, one actually works also in a collaborative manner. I mean, one actually does, I do sketches. There are other people at the office, my close associates that do sketches, and we discuss all of this, like we do like in every office, I suppose. And, and then eventually something comes out of it. Next, please. Now, the third point related to relating to citing is this. which is some, well, I suppose nobody will recall. <coughs> I don't recall either. <coughs> but there are, happily enough, there are books and photographs which actually tell us that when the first train actually came to Princeton, um, it actually stopped over there, almost exactly Blur Hall. And there are these historic pictures that this is actually documented, and if one is to believe pictures that they're not kind of, you know, played with, uh, uh, then one, of course, has a historical document. Uh, <clears throat> and I do really believe that those pictures were not tampered. Um, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> why am I saying that? Because Blair Hall, in a sense, 
was to strengthen and underline and make that point of arrival from the city important, an important arrival, because at that point you came at that there, and then you crossed over, and through the amazing steps that actually brought you all the way up, and then you moved diagonally into, into, the, into the university itself, rather that that was the alternative entrance, rather than the entrance, say, from, from Nassau Street into, into the formal court uh, in front of Nassau Hall. <coughs> Next, please. <coughs> now, later, or at least when we actually got involved in this project, uh, uh, the dinky, as it is actually referred to, uh, stops here. It didn't stop any longer over there. And uh, there was no requirement from the university that we had to actually do a gate or an entrance there, but I just again felt almost kind of mesmerized by that historic memory of what actually happened when you arrived with the train. And so therefore, if the dinky stops here, I was determined to actually have a, a route, an entrance at that point. Now, it just happened to coincide, and it was a happy coincidence, that that point was indeed the east-west axis of all the activity and movements of students, etc., uh, within the university, especially when this project was done, since that actually brought the students all the way to the terminus where, where, where the Frist, uh, the Frist um, Center is, which, of course, Student Union in my days was actually further up there, but, but now the Student Union was, was down there. So I thought, well, that was an opportunity now to actually establish that axis and make this a main entrance. Next, please. Now, that entrance was imagined like this. It was imagined, in other words, as a typical porter's lodge in any of the colleges, the collegiate places and universities in England. For example, and most notably, places like uh, Oxford and Cambridge. Every college in Oxford and Cambridge, every college in the Sorbonne, every college in the Italian universities, and so on and so on, actually has a place of entrance, which is not an accidental entrance, but it's an entrance where you actually go, you report, you refer to something, information, this and that. And I thought that that was probably the most right place to put that. And so um, it's a place also where the mail for the students is collected, etc. Now, as we said already before, there was a moat there for some other reasons, and so the bridge had to actually be a bridge in order to cross over, otherwise the moat had to be ruined. And then the composition is such that it is already, although it is a gate, it is a gate that is inflected this way. It is inflected towards us, towards, towards the, 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 the train, in order to announce entrance and to uh, establish a, a place of, of, of reference. Next, please. That is under construction. Next, please. <clears throat> the other point I wanted to make is this, not to do with, with access and entrances, but rather with the character of the east side of those colleges as opposed to the west side of those colleges. Now, <clears throat> I had actually noticed as a student here, and to, to I mean, I was extremely impressed and exhilarated with that, although it's a very simple idea, but still it is actually clear, that as you do know, the campus, although the campus is not like this any longer, the campus actually had a boundary at that point. That was the boundary of the... That's why all of these colleges, as you remember, when you come down here, yes, they have entrances. They have entrances. But otherwise, they present a wall. They present a rather sort of solid wall because one side was intramuros, inside the walls. The other side was extramuros, outside the walls. And although the walls have not been like other colleges and universities in America, but, and that's very characteristic of Princeton, which means that any college and any wall that has an opening that is not, it's not gated, it's totally open, the reference to what is a boundary, that which both, as I said, distinguishes and connects, because boundary has both those concepts, 
uh, that was something that, that it was really quite, uh, quite an important uh, idea. In his own language, I.M.P. actually had understood that. And that's why these diagonal lines that he's got, they're not lines of entrances from birth. <laughs> actually, the buildings themselves actually present these sorts of continuous triangulated sort of volumes that distinguish and makes that into, into a wall. I only make that reference because I, I just wanted to stress that these things, things that I'm interested in, they're not really uh, uh, necessarily uh, stylistic. They're things which are really fundamentally architectonic. So we've taken the view then that the new Whitman College would present itself as a rather sort of strong wall on that side with a main entrance here and another entrance from that side and an entrance from that corner there, the corner of Baker Hall, going all the way this way, which is quite an important because that is where the main parking is. Otherwise, the college opens up to the east, basically gesturally, uh, gesturally uh, embracing the rest of the community of the campus. Next, please. This is an image of that size, which is rather sort of uh, solid, so to speak, and you can see the tower and the bridge, etc. Next, please. Now, <clears throat> it was clear to me by then that uh, Whitman College should not be a single megastructural structure, building. It should not be a single building, first of all. It should not be a single megastructural building which in order to alleviate pain and monotony would be kind of organized by organizing the masses in such a manner that uh, they would allow, say, interpolation of spaces or whatever. I didn't think that that was the right thing to do. And I thought very clearly, I thought, and I, I think I did the right, we did the right decision here. Uh, I mean... I know we're right, but I cannot judge it. Uh, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> that this is not a continuous megastructure. It is actually broken out of, into different buildings, namely 14 buildings, making, as we said before, a family of buildings, and organized around courts, one, two, three courts. Um, in the tradition of collegiate works, and buildings and colleges and universities, uh, especially in, in Oxford and, and Cambridge. Next, please. This is a model <clears throat> showing the massing, because it's not just a single building, but the buildings themselves are actually very different in height, very different in fatness, in thinness. You know, they're very, they're totally individual, they have, but they speak the same language. Next, please. In fact, that idea, that simple idea, the idea, in other words, of making a community of buildings rather than one single building, uh, it was not new. And so that's why I know that I'm I was absolutely right. It was not new. And it actually went back to West and Pine and Woodrow Wilson in this country and in this, and this university, who had introduced such a simple yet fantastically memorable idea back in the 1896 when they embarked on the great project of Gothic Collegiate Princeton, the great project that actually gave us all of this building, all of that neighborhood at Princeton, which to my mind and in my opinion has been to this day the most indisputable architectural mark and contribution of this great academic uh, institution. Next, please. And if that is the case, then I would like to think that it is really to the credit of the present administration, to the credit of the Board of Trustees and also donors of this university, that they had the insight, and although that may sound funny, it is true, we never make always the right decisions, but that was definitely one great decision, that they had the insight of 
embracing the vision of Oxbridge Collegiate Life. And I think that it is really to the great credit that they had the courage to do that at a moment in history when architectural culture is actually doubting its cause. And to actually embrace that vision, it was both insightful and also it was courageous. And I would also think that it is to the credit of the students and the alumni of Princeton that they wholeheartedly supported such a vision, placing therefore humanism, the whole humanistic culture, on the agenda once again. Next, please. So Whitman is not a single building. It is a family of buildings, some small, some tall, some here, some there, some large, some fat, some thin, some dot, whatever it is, with different sort of clothes, with different sort of intensity, with different sort, in, in different sort of materials, and yet compatible between themselves. Very similar, like a family. Uh, <clears throat> I suppose you have a wife, you have a husband, there are children, there are daughters, there are sons, their grandmothers, their grandchildren, when you actually sit for Christmas or in this country for Thanksgiving, it is fantastic that they all actually look so different from each other and yet so similar to each other. And that is really what is fantastic. And that is what I say when I say that this is a family of buildings. That's what I mean. Next, please. Now, we had done a number of colleges in England, and I'm going to show you very, very briefly uh, two examples. And the administration had actually visited those examples, and I suppose uh, they must have actually felt that we probably could do the job that was envisaged here. Our first collegiate building were in the Grove Quadrangle in, in Magdalen College in Oxford. This is the site plan of that. This is the great bridge as you're coming into Oxford from London. This is a great tower. This is a great tower. The tower which actually inspired the tower of the graduate college here. Uh, but we never say that the graduate college you know, tower is like horrible because it makes reference to Magdalen. On the contrary, it's, it's, it's the beauty that one actually makes references because otherwise one never understands each other unless there is some sort of commonality of references and languages. Uh, now, these were the buildings. I'm not going to go into that. We basically were responsible for producing this. And in plan, you can see clearly the strategy creating a court and yet at that time having an open site towards a deer park towards the nature, etc. Next, please. That building was designed in 1899-1981, and it was really the first traditional building of that size and for such an august institution, Oxford, and more specifically, Magdalen College, which together with Trinity is probably like next to the Bank of England. Uh, um, and... and, and it was a very important uh, project, I think, not just for us. For us, definitely, it was important. But it was important, really, for, for contemporary architecture because it opened up. It opened up. It, it, it gave credibility to traditional architecture. For a very long time, there were always, of course, continuing people who actually practiced traditional architecture, but they were practicing uh, in, in small houses or in large houses, not because they were not capable or talented to do any larger building, not that, but because the culture itself did not allow that. The neo-modernist tradition had actually sucked everybody into its vortex, and, and there was nothing else uh, uh, other than, than one language. It was, uh, it was a single language. So one actually felt dizzy, because although philosophically one lived in a democratic society, one, again and again, one was actually buttered about the fact that you could not do this, you cannot do that, this is immoral, this is unethical, 
this is fadidadi, this is not possible, this is bygone, this is all this nonsense that we still hear today. So that project actually set them up. And, and, and since then, there must have been at least 25 colleges in different sorts of sizes in England, not by us. We only did two or three other ones, but by other colleagues which actually uh, are contributed to that sort of revival. Next, please. This is the real project. Uh, this is uh, the main auditorium, and that's one of the ranges, one of the uh, uh, accommodation uh, buildings. Next, please. Another project was that, which actually followed in two or three years after Magdalen College. This is Cambridge. This is the river. And Cambridge, as you do know, has the traditional Cambridge, the Cambridge that everybody knows, and it has the garden suburb Cambridge. And within that garden suburb Cambridge, which is actually quite a beautiful part, uh, there are two or three huge urban blocks. That's one block. All of that is one block. This is a figure ground drawing, so it doesn't actually show where the streets are. And the reason of drawing like this is to show the tightness of how a traditional, traditional Cambridge is done as opposed to the kind of uh, 19th, late 19th century and 20th century. Now, this is a very big block, and all of these black things that you see here, they're buildings done by uh, extremely prominent contemporary architects. Um, this is Selwyn College, which is uh, this college, sorry, this is the Selwyn College the existing, and we have been responsible for extending came uh, uh, Selwyn College, which, as you can see, is actually probably doubling the size of, of Cambridge, of, of uh, Selwyn itself, with an auditorium, with a library, and with uh, uh, um, ranges for accommodation for students. Instead of actually taking that sort of strategy, which is a strategy of imagining of a campus as a, an office park, what is called today an office park, uh, we, we believe that it is extremely important to maintain the tradition of the courtyard. And so you can actually see it, that this is the only, project, the only uh, project in here, in this block, which actually maintains that, that tradition. Next, please. This is an image of how an aerial view, as an image initially of what that may be. Uh, <clears throat> this is the existing court. These buildings exist. These are the new buildings on that side, the library, etc., and all of that. And these are the other buildings by extremely notable uh, architects. The buildings are such, they are stupendous. All of these buildings are absolutely stupendous. What I, I, I never really kind of understood is why they don't want to talk to each other. Next, please. So within the courts of Selwyn, and that's one of the courts of Selwyn, uh, interestingly enough, it's a very un-English image that within a court, the pristine courts of, of, of the English college to actually have these trees and all of this, but that's what was decided to do there. And in a sense, it was a premonition of what would happen at, uh, at, at uh, Whitman College because, as you appreciate, one of the main differences in landscaping uh, in between English colleges and American colleges is that you have American colleges uh, are introducing nature in. They have trees inside the courts because nature the landscape, the American mind and the American vision always, the, 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 the history was that uh, um, the nature itself, landscape itself, and the man-made had to be actually interacting, whereas, whereas in England and generally in European colleges, the courts with the lawn, they are manicured because even nature there is actually artificial. Next, please. So let me take you very quickly through uh, uh, Whitman College. <clears throat> Next, please. <clears throat> so a first sketch <clears throat> of the Hargadon Hall, the entrance from the west. Next, please. The semi-realized at that point of the picture image of it. Next, please. Looking through the arches of Hargadon Hall, all the way, you can actually imagine that this is what now, of course, it's finished. Uh, uh, the more central building is, which is uh, um, the, the dining hall, the community hall. On 
the left is the south wing, the south range of the North Hall with the right cloisters here, which actually lead to some part of administration, but prominently and importantly, they lead this way into the library. Next, please. As you come into the South Court uh, and you turn back, you came to the South Court from that opening, yes? That was a bridge behind there. You came there, and as you come there and you go diagonally, then you actually see the whole building together. You see the Merle Pivirotto uh, Tower. Next, please. The Merle Pivirotto Tower. This is part of Hargadon Hall. This is the beginning, as it will actually move to the left here, the, 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 <clears throat> the beginning of, 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 uh, of, of the... This is, this is the North Hall, and, and behind you, you have Baker Hall, and Lauritsen Hall here, Baker Hall behind you, and behind this image is the class of um, um, <clears throat> 1983. Um, one comment here is that the volumes clash. The volumes clash intentionally. And that's a common comment about the composition generally, is that every of those buildings that I mentioned, they have one preferred view, which is their best view, so to speak. It's their full, it's their passport view, you know. Not, you know, the, the passport, totally. In other words, your eyes are not closed, you're smiling, not smiling a lot, blah, 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 etc. The rest of the views around, uh, they are, they have to give because another building takes prominence. And that is, again, that sort of debate and, and relationship between them. So that's why, for example, Hargadon here feels crammed in because it had its moment on the other side, yes, etc., etc. <laughs> next, next, please. So moving further down, you can actually see now the right cloisters. You can see the North Hall, the south face of the North Hall. Next, please. Um, <clears throat> this is a very important sort of section. It's a north, it's an east-west section. That was a Hargadon Hall with a bridge on that side the cloisters that we said before, the uh, main uh, dining hall, community hall, and then towards, towards the, uh, the east. And that section actually shows clearly what's happened, what happened with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the land, the landscape. So basically, there is a whole area under here which is not really manifested volumetrically. And under here, there is a theater, under here, there are um, um, computer rooms. There are different other sorts of facilities. And uh, <clears throat> it allows to create this platform from which you can actually look this way. Next, please. That actually is better. Uh, <clears throat> it shows it clearly. And it also shows clearly the importance of that lawn. I think it's not accidentally that we've been drawing again and again these pictures like this because we could have cut the picture here. But that is part, that is really part of the architecture. I mean, for me, architecture is not just the buildings. For me, architecture is the buildings, but it's those buildings also. Those buildings behind, the existing buildings of, of, of Dillon Jim is part of the whole complex. Next, please. This is a view now. We've come down to the east court, yes? And, and then we have the lawn on that side here. Uh, pity that the picture is not kind of wide angle in order to have Mesa Green also. But you can see the, the skyline that we were saying before. This is the main hall, the main dining hall. Next to the dining hall, there are like two other volumes. One is a rotunda volume here, another one is behind, and these are smaller dining halls for parties uh, of, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 people, etc. And they assume different sort of form. I mean, the very kind of uh, characteristic form of that is, is taken from collegiate uh, kitchens of, of, uh, uh, of, of colleges in England. Next, please. And so, therefore, we've done now, we started there, we went like this, come around, and now we're coming back again to, to move uh, north. Next, please. So this is the view of the south court facing north. Next, please. The same view with the previous sort of kind of rendering of how it may be. You can see the tower of the north court. Next, please. And so at that point now we will enter through the Tower of North Court and actually move to the, sorry, the Tower of the South Court 
and move to the North Court, the Chester, Chester, Chester Court. Next, please. So once we pass through that tower, that's the view that one actually has, that Fisher Hall, with its uh, passage also that will connect to the north, uh, and that small sort of opening that we discussed before in images, uh, which will actually lead us now again to, to the west. Next, please. That is the image that we've seen before, but I need to say one little comment here that if you noticed, I had to actually, we had to uh, negotiate some levels there, and, and you can negotiate levels anyway, but the thing is like to have a, a theme and to have a narrative behind it. And I thought that the narrative that exists in the graduate college, you know the graduate college, that you come in, as you come in, you open the first court diagonally. And when you come diagonally, you see this little sort of podium, yes? It's much higher than that. And that modulates, and it says clearly that this is really for traffic, and this is more private, etc., etc. Next, please. So this is the great view from the northeast with the lawn, the maze alone, and the same view of, of, uh, of the buildings uh, of the north court that we saw before. Next, please. <clears throat> the passage through. Next, please. The same from the other side in an initial image of what had imagined it to be. And, and as you appreciate, you know, these are like renderings as they go, and you know, there's a different sort of version here, but the idea is exactly the same. So you can see uh, Fisher Hall and, 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 uh, uh, and, and North Hall on that side. And the beginning of the ramp that will lead to the Merle Pivirotto Tower. Next, please. Which is taking shape here. Next, please. Which was imagined initially like this. Yes, please. Which was realized like this. Next, please. Next. <clears throat> Next, please. <clears throat> I'm running late, but I will, I will really kind of try to kind of wrap it up. Uh, <clears throat> construction and why one feels and thinks that the building should be robust. Um, <clears throat> Whitman College actually has a composite construction. The inside of the building, in other words, that which actually holds the building, that which actually holds the, the levels and the floors and the roof and the weight and the pimple actually moving, etc., is very conventional. <clears throat> it is basically a wall, bearing wall with the slabs, etc., and it's a very conventional system. The outside wall is a wall which belongs really not to the building, it belongs to the courts, if I can put it like that. The outside wall is there because of the sensuousness of experience, which is the human experience of touching and seeing and feeling, and, and, <clears throat> and that is a bearing wall. Next, please. So <clears throat> on one hand, you have the structure, which is this line that goes up, Yes, a bearing wall system sitting on conventional sort of concrete, etc. And then here you have a wall which is a stone wall which is bearing by itself, connected to the back, bearing by itself, and as I said, it's actually en encapsulating, uh, enveloping the building itself. Next, please. The same with articulations that have to do with uh, orioles, bay windows, what have you. Next, please. So, <clears throat> the concrete internal wall that I showed you before, the structure is conventional bearing wall, and all that work is conventional fast track work. It's as fast as you can make it, you know, whatever people can actually build and how fast they can build today. The external wall that you see here, this part of the external wall that is here, is slow track because here you do not necessarily have uh, industrialized procedures of building, but you have more handcrafted 
procedures are building. Next, please. And the same thing here, you know, all that external, external wall, the field work on that side, the argillite, well, the similar to argillite field work on that side, and the cut in the stone on that side, all of that is slow track work. Next, please. So you will say to me, why on earth uh, are you going to actually delay us? Well, one is not really delaying anything because ideally the fast track actually goes, the building closes, they can work inside, and the slow track actually goes by itself until the whole thing is completed. Um, but what is more important is that even if there is a delay, that delay that you pay for, for the external work, is actually worth it because that's what you're going to live with for the next 300 years. And you may think this is a funny way of talking, but I don't think so. That is really what you're going to live with the next 500, 300, 200 years. And that has to be something that you can touch, you can feel, that cannot be concrete, that cannot be stainless steel, that cannot be glass. All of these images are nice, the stainless steel and the glass, etc. But these are corporate images which I cannot imagine that uh, anybody would love to, to, to live uh, as, as a student uh, uh, in a college. Next, please. Now, that mode of this, this duality of construction, you can actually see very clearly in some of these versions, uh, John Ziegler, who was responsible for the project, has apparently have a much, many more of these. I have only those images, which actually show the construction. And you can see uh, uh, Fisher Hall was the first building that was finished because we had, not us, but not us as designers, but, but the people who built this, Torkon, and all the people, the, the, uh, the skilled laborers, they had to actually understand what we were trying to do. Because as you appreciate, this is, this is a building that is not quite common, so to speak, in the way it's built, in the way by which American industry, uh, building industry actually works. So that was almost the first building that everything was actually studied and understood, and then the rest of the buildings actually come. Next, please. You can see the structure, which is very conventional, yes? Still, very conventional structure, still concrete, yes? Next, please. And then slowly, the stonework comes up. Next, please. There are other ones which are still like just shells, yes? Concrete shells. Next, please. Next. Next, please. And it's uh, pretty close to the model, actually, which is... Uh... <laughs> Next, please. <clears throat> Okay, final words about texture, about materials, the sensibility, I mean, the, the, the interest in the materials themselves. Um, and, and the comment, I suppose, would be that there's no doubt that we think, and I think personally very strongly, about stone being more beautiful than concrete. And it's not a matter of being, you know, trying to be uh, <clears throat> democratic or not. There's no democratic judgment here period, stone is more beautiful than concrete. <coughs> Next. Uh, sorry. Or more beautiful than plastics uh, on account of its texture, on account of color variation, on account of the way it breathes, on the account of the patina it accumulates over time. Uh, stone gives you a building that is not filled up with buttocks. Uh, it's a building that actually you can see the wrinkles, you can see the way by which the building ages, and, and all of that stuff is very important to me. And that's what I mean by, by, uh, by humanistic values within architecture and within building. Next, please. Also, I cherish a lot the kind of uh, the intervention of the hand, the intervention of the... Uh, I may have a more kind of romantic view about it. I don't know what it is. Uh, but, but basically, there is something that makes the building live and something that makes the building connect with the people who made it. And I'm sure John Laughter and John Ziegler and Mike McKay and everybody involved in this project will have to tell you more and more stories than I know uh, because I was jet lag coming back and forth. Uh, uh, but, but the amount of 
interest that these 80 people and 80 laborers that they had, at a time there must have been about 150, 160 people working on this project, and that comradeship and feeling of achievement at the end of the day when the day finished and they looked what they did, it's something fantastic. And as I said before, sometimes I wake up at night and I think, well, perhaps I'm over kind of sentimental about this. But ultimately, I wake up in the morning and I realize that it's not sentimentality at all. Uh, uh, it is actually a, a, real, a real and important thing in life. Next, please. Next, please. Ornament, decoration, sculpture, profiles, all of these are ways by which the architect embellishes, decorates a building. Now, we are at a moment in history where we think that decoration is useless, that embellishment is a waste of money, um, and yet at the same time we buy our wives jewelry. <laughs> and sometimes you think of it and you look, at human culture, and you say, well, human culture always had decorative elements. But it is how you're going to use decorative elements. If you're actually going to go to a jeweler and get your wife in, and then when she comes out, you can't recognize her face because you're like fooled with things, obviously it's the wrong thing to do. If you go in and she comes out with just a little bit, you know, again, it's a wrong thing to do. So how do you find the balance? And it's the same thing in architecture, I think. It's like... Uh, um, why do you decorate something? You decorate connections and junctions always because you have to articulate them, you have to show them, you have to highlight them, you have to make them important. You decorate the face. Very few people actually have uh, decorations, say, along their spine. There are cultures where you have decorative aspects on the spine, but that is related to the mythology of that culture, etc. So now in architecture, I think you can and should decorate the opening of a window. It's necessary in order to have rubble stone stop. You cannot stop the rubble stone. You've got to have that cut stone. And that cut stone, if it were flat, a flat piece of stone, would be a flat piece of stone. Uh, uh, <clears throat> if it actually has moldings, then it has shadows. And if it has moldings which are projecting further out, when it rains, it doesn't actually tri trickle here and it doesn't actually uh, dirty the whole place, etc., etc. Uh, there are moldings and decorations exactly where the datum is established. It's not, it's not accidental that actually, especially men, actually wear belts so that, you know, they can hold their trousers, I suppose. But, but you know, the belt is a place that you can actually, you know, have... Uh, you can decorate the belt. You can decorate this, as I said, etc. Next, please. The doorway, the entrance of the doorway and the importance of that doorway, from doorway A to B to C, etc., they're hierarchies, and so these are the right and sane place to actually have decorative elements. Next, please. Next, please. The oriel window, as it projects out of the mass itself, because it actually hails a different sort of room, etc., behind it. The termination of the coping. Next, please. Next. And the sculptural elements which actually come at a point at the central uh, building of Community Hall of, of Whitman College. Well, thank you very much, and my apologies for taking so long. Thank you. Thank you.